In a recent publication I was given, I read the uh, fascinating story of the history of the automotive industry and some of the personal fortunes that were won and lost in the early 1900s. Uh, one of the most interesting characters involved among them was an entrepreneur named Willie Durant. William Durant, they, his friends called him Billy. He was the owner of a carriage industry that uh, began in the 1880s. And he, and he built it on the principle of controlling everything that went into making a buggy. And uh, that's exactly what he would do later on with his engine-powered buggies and a corporation he called General Motors. In 1905, he rescued a, um, a financially broke situation, a, a young car maker, uh, and he saved him from bankruptcy. His name was David Buick. Billy would form a partnership with Buick, and together they kind of created this empire by uh, buying out these smaller car companies, also named after their founders, names like Ransom Olds of Oldsmobile, uh, a man named Walter Chrysler. Uh, Durant teamed up with a French automaker named Louis Chevrolet, and then a French-Canadian joined the group who named his company in honor of his predecessor. Uh, his last name was Cadillac, the same ancestor that founded the city of Detroit in 1701. At one point, I read in this account, Henry Ford agreed to sell his young automotive plant to Billy Durant, but Ford refused GM stock and wanted cash instead. They actually agreed on a price, but Billy Durant missed the closing deadline by only a few hours, and Henry Ford changed his mind and, of course, changed the course of automotive history. Over the next few decades, Durant and his partners would uh, make a fortune. In fact, I read that uh, more than 70 individuals became millionaires by either joining or supplying General Motors, and that was in the early 1900s. Billy Durant, though, would lose his fortune and regain it, and he'd lose it again. His, uh, his last attempt at car making ended as he lost control of GM in an attempt to compete, and that car company, Durant Motors, failed on the eve of the Great Depression. In 1936, this rather interesting creator of a billion-dollar industry was penniless. In fact, he was managing a bowling alley in Flint, Michigan. He and his original partner, David Buick, were too poor to even own one of the tens of thousands of cars they had helped create. That's what you call going from riches to rags. Uh, frankly, that fall from fame and, and riches and uh, into obscurity and rags is nothing really compared to our next hero of faith. And, and you've got to discover one of the key differences between Moses and Durant and just about everybody else for that matter is the fact that Moses will walk away from his fame. He will walk away from his fortune willingly. And he'll walk away because of his faith. So if you're not already there, turn to Hebrews 11. And let's quickly... Uh, catalog how you could measure the greatness of this individual and the testimony that he stamped on a nation. 
because of his faith. Now, there are five things. First of all, let me just tell you that Moses was Israel's greatest prophet. God distinguished Moses from all other prophets when he said in Numbers 12, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I'll speak to him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in my household. I'm going to speak to him mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in riddles, for he beholds the form of God. You you may remember it was Moses who came so close to the presence of the glory of God that he had to cover his face because he glowed. And people couldn't look at him. He was Israel's greatest prophet. Secondly, he was Israel's greatest lawgiver. Virtually everything the Jewish people knew about the law and the ordinances of God came through the writings of Moses, who penned Genesis, Exodus, say it with me, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five inspired books we call what? The Pentateuch, from the Greek penta meaning five, and tukas, meaning volumes. All five volumes came from Moses, greatest lawgiver. And what would follow, thirdly, is that he was also Israel's greatest historian, without a doubt. Fourthly, Moses was Israel's greatest saint. God recorded in Numbers 12 again that Moses was the most humble man alive on the face of the earth. In other words, he he really didn't have a personal agenda or personal ambition after all. In fact, God would vindicate him as time went on. Finally and fifthly, Moses was Israel's greatest human deliverer. And, and that's kind of a review that I'm sure you know. Some of you are newer to the faith, and I wanted you to be aware of that. He, he's going to end up in this unmarked grave somewhere, only God knows, without a physical marker so that the people cannot go back to that spot and either venerate him at best or at worst worship him to this very day. He never entered the land he led millions of people to inherit. He never regained the luxury and and the palace and the status that he really left willingly, as we'll see in a minute. See, unlike Billy Durant, Moses will go willingly from one chapter of his life to another, and and the key word that's going to mark each chapter of his life will be the words by faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to lay that out for us, And and to do so, he's going to filter a lot of Scripture regarding the life of Moses. In fact, he's going to condense the entire book of Exodus, and we're going to cover it all tonight in about 25 more minutes. Again, miracles happen. You You might circle the beginnings of each of these chapters, so to speak, in Moses's life provided here in Hebrews 11. The words by faith appear in verse 23. We'll call that the first chapter. Verse 24, by faith. You could circle that. Verse 27, by faith, see that? And verse 28, by faith. And I'm going to leave verse 29 for our next study simply because the pronoun, if you look carefully, changes from he to they. It really focuses on the faith of the Israelite. So we'll deal with that separately. Now back in verse 23, the condensed biography of Moses begins with what we'll call the first chapter. I want to just call it a preservation of faith. Notice, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child 
and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, right away, you're struck with the fact that this first chapter is really about the faith of whom? His parents. Amram and Jochebed. You need to understand that, that Moses is born to slaves 64 years after the death of Joseph. Parents of Moses were married during the darkest days of the Jewish enslavement in Egypt. In fact, the new Pharaoh, who didn't know about or care about Joseph and his legacy, had adopted this new policy for this nation of unpaid slaves. The royal edict that that Pharaoh delivered was for Hebrew uh, midwives to suffocate any baby boy uh, born to Jewish parents. When that didn't work, and it didn't, he ordered anyone, anybody in the kingdom, Jew or Gentile, who knew anything about the birth of a Jewish baby boy to throw that baby into the Nile River. Simple as that. He didn't have to worry about the law. He didn't have to worry about the Pharaoh. Just throw the baby in the river. In fact, if you go back to the full story, you discover that this slave couple already had a daughter, Miriam, and then they deliver this baby boy. Life becomes extremely complicated. Now, the writer of Hebrews repeats the phrase here. Would you look? It says, they saw he was a beautiful child. That struck me. That's kind of redundant, isn't it? I mean, what parent doesn't think their baby is beautiful, right? And sometimes it's only the parents who have that opinion. Isn't that true? I guess grandparents too. I mean, what are you supposed to say when they bring their baby up to you? And you just look at it and go, oh, that's... As a pastor, you know, this has really created a predicament for me. And so years ago, I decided to adopt uh, what J. Vernon McGee did when he pastored a large church in California. He wrote the parents would bring up their newborns to him, and he'd look down, and he'd smile, and he'd say, well, that's a baby. (laughs) That's a baby. So why the reference here to Moses being a beautiful child? Of course they thought he was beautiful. I would agree with John Calvin, the reformer, who wrote that Moses was marked by something, although we're not told what. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote that Amram, the father of Moses, was visited by God in a vision who informed him that uh, Moses was the promised deliverer. Whatever it was, Amram and Jochebed, the parents of Moses, risked their lives to save his. And for three months, did you notice, they, they, they try to hide him out of sight. The full story tells us. Imagine how hard that would be. How do you hide a newborn? How, how, do, you, how do you keep a baby quiet for three months? Chuck Swindoll, writing on this text, said that he remembered how their firstborn son never slept through the night for 18 long, weary months. He wrote, there were times when I longed for a wicker basket in the Nile River nearby. (laughs) I mean, you've been there. Evidently, something happens because after three months, they realize it isn't going to work anymore. Now, we're not told, but maybe it's because Pharaoh ordered a a, a hut-to-hut search, suspicious that Jews were hiding their babies. And they certainly were, I'm sure. Rather than give up 
or, or give in. They, they hung on. And uh, Hebrews tells us how. They hung on by faith. They would do the right thing, even if it cost them their lives, they would not take their son's life. And so the book of Exodus tells us, indeed, they fashioned a wicker basket and covered it with pitch. The word for pitch, bitumen, is the word that was a plant boiled into paste, commonly believed to repel crocodiles who happened to be the supposed servants of the god emanation Nile River. And they set the basket among the reeds, Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. It isn't an accident that they placed the basket right where they did. They happened to know that was the exact spot along the path where the daughter of Pharaoh would walk. By faith, they did what they could do. They placed him there knowing he would be discovered. And then leaving him in the hands of God, Miriam hiding nearby, trusting God to do what he would and sparing the life of their son, perhaps believing if there was indeed that vision, if Josephus was correct, we don't know, but that indeed he would be the deliverer that they had prayed and longed for for so long. If you went back to Exodus 2, you'd, you'd discover that, sure enough, the daughter of Pharaoh comes to bathe at the Nile, not in the Nile, by the way. To bathe in the Nile would have opposed the custom of their people, according to historical accounts. In fact, the Pharaohs had their own bath houses made of marble where they didn't need to worry about crocodiles getting in the bathtub. So, so why is she coming to bathe at the banks of the Nile? Well, the Nile River was believed to be an emanation of Osiris, one of their chief gods. And the waters were considered divinely, magically empowered, that they could produce not only long life, but get this, fertility. So you add to the fact that Jewish historians had long held that this was the 19th dynasty of Pharaoh's, and that this particular daughter was childless. The daughter of Pharaoh wasn't coming to the Nile with a bar of soap to get a bath and hopefully beat away the crocodiles. She was coming to ceremonially bathe with water from the Nile in hopes of having a baby. She didn't need to be clean. She wanted to have a child. God perfectly timed her desire and her longing to coincide with a three-month-old baby they just couldn't hide any longer. And there he is in a basket floating there for her attending women to just so happen to discover. And when they opened the lid, every one of their hearts melted. Jewish or not, the princess announces, he's mine. The Nile, God has answered my prayer. Josephus adds as well that the princess took the basket around the servants or the maidens with her to see if any of them could nurse the child. She had no success, and only then did Miriam come out from behind the bush she was hiding in by orders and ask the princess if she'd like some references. And, and the princess said, of course, and Miriam went and got her mother. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 2, verse 9, that the princess 
paid Moses' mother to raise her son. Is that great or what? Mom gets the allowance. That's just perfect, isn't it? It's the way it ought to be. What started it all? An act of preservation by faith. Second chapter. This one we'll call the renunciation of faith. Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure Ill, Ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, considering, that is, factoring it all out, that the reproach of Christ, the Hebrew would read, the Messiah, was greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. In the Exodus account, we're told that the princess made Moses her son. That is, she made him her legal son and heir. Think about that. In Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7, he speaks of Moses being trained in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians so that he became powerful in speech and deed. He is being groomed. On the outside, he's going to look like an Egyptian, but on the inside, like Joseph, he's still a Jew. See, his mother had taught him well in those early years before he moved into the palace. Most scholars believe that he would have moved into the palace at age 12. So the faith of his slave parents would take root and become the faith of this young man. Extra-biblical historians tell us that by the time Moses reached the age of 30, he had already led the Egyptian army to a strategic victory over the Ethiopians, that he had become one of the best military strategists in his day, a bronzed warrior, a seasoned soldier, a wise and competent leader. And by the way, he just so happened to be among the leadership in the greatest united empire power currently reigning on the planet, perhaps some believe the heir to the throne of Egypt. F.B. Meyer, a British pastor and expositor from the 1800s, kind of summarized in his beautiful way the wealth and grandeur of Moses' life. Listen to this. Let me read a paragraph. Hang with me. What a magnificent land must Egypt have been in those days. The banks of the Nile were covered with cities, villages, stately temples, and all the evidences of an advanced civilization, while mighty pyramids and colossal figures towered 100 feet above Moses' head. The cream of all this was poured into the cup of Moses. He was brought up in the palace and treated as the grandson of Pharaoh. If he rode forth in the streets, it would be in a princely carriage. If he floated upon the Nile, it would have been in a golden barge amid the strains of beautiful music. If he wished for anything, the almost unlimited wealth of the treasures of Egypt was within his reach. He was sent to be educated in the college there at the Temple of the Sun called the Oxford of ancient Egypt. It would become one of the the marvels of the ancient world, seven wonders. He, He would have learned to read and write the hieroglyphs. He would have been instructed in mathematics, astronomy, and chemistry. Kind of reminds you of Daniel, doesn't it? 
in all of which the Egyptians were at this point renowned. He was more than a royal student. He'd become a statesman and a soldier. Josephus writes, F.B. Meyer quotes, that when the Ethiopians invaded Egypt, routed the army, sent against them, and threatened the capital city of Memphis, in the panic, the oracles were consulted, and on their recommendation, 30-year-old Moses was entrusted with the command of royal troops. He immediately took the field, surprised and defeated the enemy, captured their capital city, and returned to Egypt victorious, laden down with the spoils of victory. And, and get this, 10 years after that victory, according to what we know biblically, he's sick of it all. The writer says, 10 years after that victory, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The word refused in the Greek language literally means to disown. He disowned the royal family. How's that? The prince of Egypt walked away from it all. He's volunteering for one of the greatest riches to rag stories ever recorded in human history. Now that begins chapter 3, and I mustn't slow down. There is the preservation by faith. There is the renunciation by faith. Now thirdly, the separation of faith. Verse 27 informs us, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Now if you've studied the life of Moses in any detail, you know how He lived 120 years, and you can divide his life into three sections of 40 years, fairly simply, right? The first 40 were spent in the palace of Egypt. The second 40 years were spent in the desert of Midian. And the the final 40 years were spent in the wilderness leading the people of Israel. Now, because of that easy division... You might automatically think when you get to verse 27 that it's talking about his 40 years in the desert of Midian, and I think that's where we make our mistake. In fact, we know that this can't be talking about those 40 years, because if you look again, it tells us that Moses Moses left Egypt, how? By faith not fearing the wrath of the king. If you go back to Exodus chapter 2, we're specifically told that after murdering that Egyptian who was beating a Jewish slave, probably killing him, and let me quote Exodus 2.14, then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. And when Pharaoh heard of the matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. He's not running at that point in faith. He's running in fear. So this can't be what Hebrews 11 verse 27 is talking about. In fact, if you look back at verse 27, we're told that Moses endured as seeing him who is unseen. This is a positive thing. Who was him? Seeing him who is unseen. Who was him? Go back up to the last part of verse 26. He was looking for the reward. Okay, who's the him who's going to bring the reward? Go to the beginning of verse 26, and you're introduced to the person Moses is ultimately trusting in, the Messiah. Moses was not impressed with the splendor of Egypt, 
and he's willing to walk away from it. Ultimately, I believe this is referring to the exodus. There was every reason to fear. In fact, ultimately, they'll be pinned against the sea with Pharaoh coming. He isn't fearing. Why? Because he's comparing everything he's known to the description of the coming kingdom passed down from Abraham. Plans of a city made by God without human hands. A kingdom unrivaled by the glory of any earthly city. And that story comes down through Joseph, whose bones Moses will take with him when he leaves Egypt, not fearing the king. See, at at that point, to to Moses, Egypt was nothing more than a a, a windy sandbar compared to the coming glorious kingdom of the Messiah. He just didn't know when that was going to come, and we're still waiting. Well, no, wait a second, Moses. Now, before you do something rash, what about all the pomp, all the ceremony, all the wealth, all the comfort and all that? You know, what about verse 25 here and the pleasures of sin? I mean, you're at the top of the food chain. You can have anything you want. you got the world by the tail. You're going to really walk away from all of that. And some super saint's going to be quick to say, well, there aren't really pleasures in sin. They pass away so quickly. Yeah, but that's not what it says here. Moses doesn't walk away from the passing of sin. He walks away from the pleasures of sin. G. Campbell Morgan, the great expositor, wrote nearly a century ago in his commentary on this verse, and I quote, it's a foolish thing to say there is no pleasure in sin, as if that will keep somebody from finding out. Of course there are pleasures in sin. Gordon's hymn for the church reads, My Jesus, I love Thee, I know Thou art mine. For thee, say it with me, for thee, all the follies of sin I resign. Morgan said, that's not what Gordon wrote. I didn't know this. He originally wrote, for thee, all the pleasures of sin I resign. But some pious soul thought it would be bad to sing about the pleasures of sin in church, and so they changed the words to follies. That sounds better. Maybe the younger generation won't find out. It happens to be a pet peeve of mine. We've changed others. You know, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I has been changed to would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? What's wrong with worm? I think it fits me perfectly. Amen? That's not so loud. That was a trick question. <laughs> Listen, what was it that aided Moses to be able to walk away from the pleasures of sin? We're told here. He compared the pleasure of sin to the reward of Christ, the the, the pleasure of immortal joys. He didn't try to say sin wasn't fun. He just believed the kingdom would be a, a funner. Bad grammar, but you get the point. That's, this is funner. Isn't it true that we lose heart because we lose sight of the eternal glory that will far outweigh our troubles and temptations? 2 Corinthians 4. I love the way one author cleared the fog away in his his comments here. He talked about Moses waiting for the glory of Christ and how that allowed him to endure 80 years, and then he never really saw it, right? 
We're waiting too. He saw him, Hebrews 11 says, who is unseen. He saw him by faith and believed it reality. Who? Jesus. The Messiah. We haven't seen him either. But we by faith believe he came. This author went on to say, just think of what it would mean to literally see the fulfillment of our promised glory in heaven and the, and the Messiah for just 60 seconds while still living on earth. Just 60 seconds, he wrote. The first 15 seconds to view the face of Christ. Then if you can tear your view away from him, which you wouldn't be able to do after only 15 seconds if you could, then take the next 15 seconds to survey the angelic millions. Then another 15 seconds to scan the architecture of heaven. And finally, 15 seconds to scan the faces of friends and loved ones already there. He said that 60 seconds would change your life. But wait a second. It changed Moses' life without having had the vision. And it's changed your life and mine too. And it's given us a perspective and a passion and a focus by faith to consider the invisible a coming reality. Amen? Chapter 1 is the preservation of faith. Chapter 2 is the great renunciation of faith. Chapter 3 reveals the separation of faith. And now chapter 4 reveals the institution of faith. Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover in the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Now for the sake of our younger brothers and sisters in the faith, this takes us back to Exodus and the eve of, of the nation Israel's departure from the land of Egypt into freedom from bondage. The final plague from God is coming. The death angel, more than likely God himself, is going to come riding on the wind and sweep into the land of Egypt to claim the firstborn of every home that's unguarded by the blood of the lamb splattered along the doorposts. For those homes so unguarded, death will come. But for those guarded, as it were, by the death of a lamb, death will pass over them, and you have then the creation of Passover. And this is the institution that by faith Moses instituted. Moses, the text here says, kept the Passover. Poieo is the verb. Literally, he instituted it by faith. An institution that points to a future and final atonement by Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who comes to pay the penalty for the sin, not only of those who are elect, but the sin of the whole world, so that common grace can be experienced and enjoyed by the entire world, and those who are elect will be given heaven. He, he starts this. Moses starts this. Several thousand years ago. The Egyptians are, are trying to do good things 
to hopefully get into the afterlife. And, and they're not sure they've done enough. Even the pharaohs, no matter how big those pyramids were, they, they were tombs, hopefully getting the attention of their God. They're still not sure. You see, religion's favorite word is do. Christianity's favorite word is done. Well, wait a second. Now that you've trusted in Christ alone for what He has done, He turns around and asks you to do. As Paul wrote to Titus, you remember? Be ready to engage in good what? Deeds, works. Not so you can be accepted by God, but because you, you have been. Now you've got, a, you've got a life to live for the glory of God, who, like Moses, you'll discover at times the sacrifices in life will not be partial, they'll be total. And Moses becomes your model of faith. This is the kind of faith that abandons past desires, present delights, and future dreams out of loyalty to God. And I close with this. I've just begun reading the biography of Adoniram Judson. Heard about him, read clips about him. Finally found an outer print copy that has all his letters in it and journal entries. And he was another Moses in a way. In fact, he's the first American Protestant missionary. And he's going to walk away from his life in America. He's going to give away everything to spend his life in the land of Burma, which is just north of modern-day Thailand. Before he embarked on his journey, he'd fallen in love with a young lady from a respectable, well-known family. And she also loved Christ. And she loved him. He wrote a letter to her father asking permission to marry his daughter. You know, this really touches me because I got two girls, and I know it may happen one day that some unworthy guy's going to ask me, and I'm going <laughs> I'm to say, absolutely not. <laughs> so just think about that if you have a daughter, uh, what it would feel like to get a letter like this. Listen. This is in 1800s English. So it's a little formal. Adnan Judson writes to the father, I have not to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influences of the southern climate, to every kind of lack, want, and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of heaven and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in the promise of meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness 
brightened by the acclamations of heathen now saved through her means, who will be there praising her Savior? Can you consent? Wow. And he said, yes. And so did she. And he would never see her again. I wonder what God is calling you to give up. To renounce. To wait for. To pursue. For his namesake. But I do know how we're to go about it. By faith. Believing that the unseen is reality. Faith is our abandonment of past desires, present delights, and future dreams out of loyalty to God. And if I had had room in that little green square, that's all the space they've given me. I didn't. I would have added the words, out of loyalty to God in light of the coming promises of God that will compensate you beyond your wildest imagination. Let me say that again. Out of loyalty to God in light of the coming promises of God that will compensate you beyond your wildest imagination. Which leads us to live then and, and, and to think and to have the perspective that effectively says, Goodbye, Egypt. I am going to a promised land. Amen. Let's conclude just with a quick word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the testimony of this individual and others that serve as incentives and encouragements to us along the way. Thank you that by your grace, you opened our eyes to the glorious light of the gospel. And we live in a dark world, and you're choosing to use the means of our own testimony to bring people from darkness to light. Cause us to live with a little more passion in light of that responsibility and privilege with an eye to the coming compensation which would stagger our minds. Thank you in the meantime for a fellowship, an assembly, a body of believers that we can enjoy and grow with and study together and serve together. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.